Chapter forty two of Pieces of Hate and Other Enthusiasms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Pieces of Hate and Other Enthusiasms by Haywood Brown. Chapter forty two. Censoring the Censor. Mice and canaries were sometimes employed in France to detect the presence of gas. When these little things began to die in their cages, the soldiers knew that the air had become dangerous. Some such system should be devised for censorship to make it practical. Even with the weight of authority behind him, no bland person, with virtue obviously unruffled, is altogether convincing when he announces that the book he has just read or the moving picture he has seen is so hideously immoral that it constitutes a danger to the community. For my part, I always feel that if he can stand it, so can I. To the best of my knowledge and belief, Mr. Sumner was not swayed from his usual course of life by so much as a single peccadillo for all of Jürgen. His indignation was altogether altruistic. He feared for the fate of weaker men and women. Every theatrical manager, every motion picture producer, and every publisher knows, to his sorrow, that the business of estimating the effect of any piece of imaginative work upon others is precarious and uncertain. Genius would be required to predict accurately the reaction of the general public to any set piece which seems immoral to the censor. For instance, why was Mr. Sumner so certain that Jürgen, which inspired him with horror and loathing, would prove a persuasive temptation to all the rest of the world? Censorship is serious and drastic business, it should never rest merely upon guesswork, and more particularly not upon the guesses of men so staunch in morals that they are obviously of distant kin to the rest of humanity. The censor should be a person of a type capable of being blasted for the sins of the people. His job can be elevated to dignity only when the world realizes that he runs horrid risks. If we should choose our senses from fallible folk, we might have proof instead of opinions. Suppose the censor of Jürgen had been someone other than Mr. Sumner, someone so unlike the head of the vice society that after reading Mr. Cabell's book, he had come out of his room not quivering with rage, but leering and wearing vine leaves. In such case, the rest would be easy. It would merely be necessary to shadow the censor until he met his first dryad. His wink would be sufficient evidence and might serve as a cue for the rescuers to rush forward and save him. Of course, there would then be no necessity for legal proceedings in regard to the book. Expert testimony as to its possible effects would be irrelevant. We would know, and we could all join cheerfully in the bonfire. To my mind, there are three possible positions which may logically be taken concerning censorship. It might be entrusted to the wisest men in the world, to a series of average men, or be abolished. Unfortunately, it has been our experience that there is a distinct affinity between fools and censorship. It seems to be one of those treading grounds where they rush in. 
to be sure, we ought to admit a prejudice at the outset and acknowledge that we were a reporter in France during the war, at a time when censors seemed a little more ridiculous than usual. We still remember the young American lieutenant who held up a story of a boxing match in Saint-Nazaire because the reporter wrote, In the fourth round, Macbeth landed a nice right on the Irishman's nose, and the claret began to flow. I'm sorry, said the censor, but we have strict orders from Major Palmer that no mention of wine or liquor is to be allowed in any story about the American army. Nor have we forgotten the story of General Pétain's moustache. Why, asked Junius Wood of the Globe, have you held up my story? All the rest have gone. Unfortunately, answered the courteous Frenchman, you have twice used the expression General Pétain's white moustache. I might stretch a point and let you say grey moustache, but I should much prefer to have you say blonde moustache. Oh, make it green with purple spots, said Junius. The use of average men in censorship would necessitate the sacrifices to the persuasive seduction of immorality, as I have suggested, and moreover, there are very few average men. Accordingly, I am prepared to abandon that plan of censorship. The wisest man in the world is too old and too busy with his plays and has announced that he will never come to America. Accordingly, we venture to suggest that, in time of peace, we try to get along without any censorship of plays or books or moving pictures. I have no desire, of course, to leave Mr. Sumner unemployed. It would perhaps be only fair to allow him to slosh around among the picture postcards. Once official censorship had been officially abolished, a strong and able censorship would immediately arise consisting of the playgoing and reading public. It is a rather offensive error to assume that the vast majority of folk in America are raring to get to dirty books and dirty plays. It is the experience of New York managers that the run of the merely salacious play is generally short. The success which a few nasty books have had has been largely because of the fact that they came close to the line of things which are forbidden. Without the prohibition, there would be little popularity. To save myself from the charge of hypocrisy, I should add that personally, I believe there ought to be a certain amount of what we now know as immoral writing. It would do no harm in a community brought up to take it or let it alone. It is well enough for the reading public and the critic to use terms such as moral or immoral, but they hardly belong in the vocabulary of an artist. I have heard it said that before Lucifer left heaven, there were no such things as virtues and vices. The world was equipped with a certain number of traits, which were qualities without distinction or shame. But when Lucifer and the heavenly hosts drifted into their eternal warfare, it was agreed that each side should recruit an equal number of these human, and at that time unclassified, qualities. A coin was tossed, and, whether by fair chance or sharp miracle, heaven won. I choose blessedness, said the captain of the angels. 
it should be explained that the selection was made without previous medical examinations, and blessedness seemed at that time a much more robust recruit than he has since turned out to be. A tendency to flat foot is always hard to detect. "'Give me beauty,' said Lucifer, and from that day to this the artists of the world have been divided into two camps. Those who wished to achieve beauty and those who wished to achieve blessedness, those who wanted to make the world better, and those who were indifferent to its salvation if they could only succeed in making it a little more personable. However, the conflict is not quite so simple as that. Late in the afternoon, when the captain of the angels had picked unselfishness and moderation and faith and hope and abstinence, and Lucifer had called to his side pride and gluttony and anger and lust and tactlessness, there remained only two more qualities to be apportioned to the contending sides. One of them was Sloth, who was obviously overweight, and the other was a furtive little fellow with his cap down over his eyes. "'What's your name?' said the captain of the angels. "'Truth,' stammered the little fellow. "'Speak up!' said the captain of the angels, so sharply that Lucifer remonstrated, saying, "'Hold on there! Anger's on my side!' "'Truth,' said the little fellow again, but with the same somewhat indistinct utterance which has always been so puzzling to the world. "'I don't understand you,' said the captain of the angels, "'but if it's between you and Sloth, I'll take a chance with you. "'Stop at the locker-room and get your harp and hallow.' Now, today, even Lucifer will admit, if you get him in a corner, that Truth is the mightiest warrior of them all. The only trouble is his truancy. Sometimes he can't be found for centuries. Then he will bob up unexpectedly, break a few heads, and skip away. Nothing can stand against him. Lucifer's best ally, beauty, is no match for him. Truth holds every decision. But the trouble is that he still keeps his cap down over his eyes, and he still mumbles his words, and nobody knows him until he is at least fifty years away and moving fast. At that distance he seems to grow bigger, and he invariably reaches into his back pocket and puts on his halo so that people can recognize him. Still, when he comes along the next time and is face to face with any man of this world, the mortal is pretty sure to say, Your face is familiar, but I can't seem to place you. There is no denying that he isn't a good mixer. But for that, he would be an excellent censor. End of chapter 42 Recording by Iswa in Belgium in August 2011 End of Pieces of Hate and Other Enthusiasms by Haywood Brown